I don't really get worked up that much. I don't get riled as much. And I used to fear the state that I'm in now because I thought it would make me indifferent. I thought it would make me not motivated. If I didn't have competition, would I even care? Like, if I didn't see someone else doing something else, would I even feel compelled to build? But actually, when you dig deep and you find, like, the really important thing of why you're doing what you're doing, then you don't need other people's competition to fuel you. Hello, I'm Emile Bellet, founder of Vespod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week with my brilliant guests, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. We want you to feel confident in saving more, earning more, and investing for the long term. Today, I'm speaking with Sharmadin Reid, founder and CEO of The Stack World, a platform that helps women monetize on their micro-communities and equip women with the tools they need to excel in their field. I loved my conversation with Sharmadin. We've been following each other's journey for a while and share a common mission and purpose to help women achieve their dreams and become financially independent. Char has really strong values and amazing work ethics, and it's always such a pleasure to chat with her. And her energy is so infectious. Today on The Wallet, Char Madin talks about how she came to be conscious of the many obstacles that women face in trying to reach their full potential. How this inspired her to create the stack world and the importance of aligning her personal values with the company's culture. Running a tech business isn't easy, but Charmadine says she's learned a huge amount in the process, so she shares her experience of fundraising and being a founder in general. Growing up, Charmadine didn't have a sense of financial security, which impacted her money mindset in adulthood. Charmadine tells us about the work she's put in to make a shift in her relationship with money. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pension B. Pension B has helped over 600,000 savers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With Pension B, you can manage your pension in a few clicks, check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as Pension B calls them, Beekeeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Invest what you can afford only and for the long term. Can I ask you to, to introduce yourself um, in, a few, in a few words, few sentences? I'm Sharmadine Reed. I am founder and CEO of The Stack World. We're a platform for women to monetize their micro-communities. My obsession is really about how can we make women more money and how can I do it through the methods that I know well, I'm good at, and I feel comfortable with. Because there are so many different ways where I could solve that thing like make women more money right but I feel like it has to work for me in the long term and it has to work for our users in the long term so I definitely spend most of my time thinking about answering that problem and for you having building the community having a community um, is quite central 
uh, to also building the um, building the product. And, and in January, over the course of January, you're running a lot of events around, you know, writing a guide to working with me, writing your personal um, vision, mission and principles. Can you tell me about the the journey that led you to to the stack? Because I guess it's 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 one journey. It's not like you pivoted and did something else. I mean, you had this big vision that you wanted to empower women since the beginning. But you know, how are you are you learning and and, and continuing uh, building the stack? Yeah. So it actually the journey to got here has been like 17 years actually if I reflect on it because it was when I first moved to London that I started to think about gender and race. I'd never thought about gender and race before I moved to London because I was very sheltered in a amazing big Jamaican loving family who told me I could do anything I want with my life. I had an incredible um, schooling. I went to like just normal English, you know, state schools but had amazing teachers that lifted me up however when I moved to London it was when my world really felt like oh I'm different I'm othered I am a black woman in the fashion industry and it wasn't cool then um and actually the first thing that was women related that I did was when I was 20 one maybe 22 I created a magazine called WAR which stood for we ain't hoes and it was all about women in hip-hop trying to show a way that you could like enjoy the music without having to be objectified and it was me working through my early 20s identity I was like but I really love you know, wearing sexy clothes and dancing to music, but I also am very academic and I, you know, it, there were all these different sides to my personality and I couldn't figure out how to make them work for society. And then with the magazine, I started to learn that I didn't have to, that I could actually be all of those people and it was okay. And You know, it was the photographer Martha Cooper who actually told me I was a feminist because before then I didn't really know what it was or what it meant. Um, when I graduated, War Magazine became War Nails. That was my first realization into having direct contact with women, hundreds if not thousands of women over a decade and realizing what all of their problems and issues were not only from customers coming into the salon and telling us. So, for example, a customer might come in and be telling us about her emotionally abusive boyfriend. And, you know, we're all talking about it like girls, but over time I'm like, mm, this is a problem, you know. But then also as an employer, I would have employees who couldn't work because they couldn't get a babysitter or they weren't allowed to work more than 16 hours because they would lose benefits. So from you know 2009 which is when I opened the salon to 2019 when I closed it I was essentially data gathering the full spectrum of issues that I believed were stopping women um becoming their full self their, you know achieving their full potential um achieving gender equality having equal pay all of these things because it's not ever just one thing And one of the reasons why the stack world is a very 360 degree holistic uh, platform is because 
you cannot solve the problem of gender equality with just one thing, you know? It takes so many different things, uh, getting all your ducks in a row to be able to do that. And, like, for me, and and the route we have chosen is to put money at the top of that pyramid but support the pyramid through knowledge, confidence, um, networking, team building, mental health, you know, all of the other events that we do are to support the top of the pyramid. Because let's say that we just made a product about money. So let's say I was like, all right, how can I make women more money? Well, we could start a um, credit card company because that would solve the problem, right? Like, oh, let me um, start a women-only credit card company and we're going to, you know, put more cash and credit into women's hands uh, because typically, and this is true, as I'm sure you know, women often get turned down for business loans and for loans if they don't have a male person who's basically going to co-sign their application. But the problem is, what is the point in giving credit to uh, women if they have an emotionally abusive partner at home, if they haven't sorted out their childcare, if they haven't designed their life around how they can use that capital efficiently. So I definitely think that I've done a round the houses way of achieving my mission. I definitely think it's the long road. And I definitely think that it probably isn't always understood by everybody instead of like why don't I just do a singular product like any other startup and just scale that one thing I just don't think it's going to solve the problem so yeah it's been 17 years I would say because I'm 37 now 17 years of data gathering and thinking what will genuinely move the needle and if you really want I mean I, I love your your approach and I think you know we, we've discussed about that uh, offline but we I think we're looking at having the biggest impact and really changing things instead of, you know, trying to replicate a model that that hasn't been working. And and maybe this is also because we have very strong values. Um, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about your your personal values and maybe your business values, uh, because that's something you you communicate a lot uh, about with the stack world. Um, Are your personal values also driving your, you know, your business values and and what you want to achieve? I definitely think that to be a mission-driven founder, like a mission, you know, people talk about missionary versus mercenary. I wish I could be a mercenary founder. In fact, I've got quite a lot of mercenary ideas, you yeah. know. I've got a little list in my head of mercenary ideas that I know <laughs> could make me a lot of money. But it just doesn't really satisfy me and my... um you know, my, (laughs) even when I was a young stylist, right, this used to really stress me out. I graduated from Central St. Martins and I was very, um, you know, right time, right place, right strategy, got a lot of styling work immediately. So I was never like a poor stylist. I was 23, making like a thousand pounds a day, living my best life, working for brands, making incredible imagery. And then every time I do a shoot, particularly for fast fashion brands, I would have an existential crisis and I'd have to like do no work for two weeks and be like, oh my God, 
all I'm doing is encouraging more people to buy more shoes or buy more jeans and like, what am I doing with my life, blah, 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 blah. And it used to really stress me out. But then I loved having the money and I loved making the images and I really loved my job. So then I'd go back and the cycle would begin again. So I feel like being a mission-driven founder is just in my DNA and it's definitely made me poorer, but it's also given me real purpose. Um, and I think like... As time goes on, we are moving into a different, you know, they call it the age of Aquarius. So I do think we're moving into a different age where, as you mentioned earlier, people do want new systems. Like, you know, they talk about like Gen Z, um, you know, Gen Z hires right now only want to work for companies that they believe are ethical. And the more that this type of thing happens, the more that people will be like, well, we better truly be ethical. So I think like in the long term, it's a better long term bet for me. And I just can't imagine doing a company that didn't really align with these values. So my, my personal values are very much entwined with the company values. Um, and, you know, I won't read them out now, but ultimately they're about systems. So we don't think about individuals or attack individuals we think about systems and systems of power you know they are that we acknowledge that we're always learning um because things are moving so rapidly the way that people think about the patriarchy and accessibility and diversity these things are happening faster than they ever have in history so it's impossible to get it right first time so acknowledging that we're always learning so yeah, I would say that our company culture is definitely uh, founded by and, you know, reinforced by me. <laughs> me and what, what I'm thinking about, you know. Um, and then when you're, when you're build, building a business, and, and especially when you have such a huge mission, and as you say, you're not taking any shortcuts to maybe, you know, make money quicker or do a big exit... Um, it can be frustrating uh, <laughs> because you see companies building very fast. Maybe, I mean, we, we're all building fast, but maybe companies that will, will ship a product maybe faster than you that will solve part of the problem. So how do you make sure you stay focused, ignore the noise and just do your own thing? I, I mean, I find it extremely hard. Um, I'm, you know, I'm working on it and I know you do so much understanding yourself i mean i would call it personal development because that's what you know people know uh, but but how do you work on yourself on on all these like different things that <laughs> that are crazy for a founder especially also as a mom because i know you also you're also juggling and taking care of your of your son so how do you do you, what is the charm in <laughs> life behind this the scenes well i would say firstly i definitely want a big exit that's for sure um you know, we can talk about why that's important yep. later. And secondly, no one ships a product faster than us. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pride and joy that we have an incredible product and engineering team. And the app, as I'm sure yep. you've seen, is so beautiful, so slick. Like, it's great. And we move really fast. The app itself is like seven months old. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's like beautiful. so good. Yep. Um, but you're you're right like it is so difficult to stay in your yeah. lane at the moment and i would say that social media to me is the main perpetrator of this and 
the easiest way to do it for me is by not being on social media because I will open my phone and I will just see all of these people launching, you know, winning. And actually LinkedIn, you know, for all its desire to be a social media platform, I think it's excelled at it. And now I can't even go to LinkedIn. It's not even safe. <laughs> I go to LinkedIn. <laughs> it's definitely not safe. Looking for a trigger? LinkedIn. Yeah, go, go you know for what it. what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> Notification. <laughs> <laughs> I I used to go to LinkedIn for respite and now I can't, can't even go to LinkedIn. There's like no place safe. So I think that I I talk about this a lot with the stack world, which is you have to know what you stand for and know what your end game is and that vision mission purpose document that I talk about all the time kind of has to be set to help you maintain a path and a destination and not get distracted by your path and destination. And I think like part of it is to do with self-development. In fact, a lot of it is to do with self-development, but I would say a lot of it's also to do with age. As As you get older, you just become, I would say for me, I'm so much more relaxed about things. I don't really get worked up that much. I don't get riled as much. And I used to fear the state that I'm in now because I thought it would make yeah. me indifferent. I thought it would make me not motivated. If I didn't have competition, would I even care? Like if I didn't see someone else doing something else, would I even feel compelled to build? But actually when you dig deep and you find like the real important thing of why you're doing what you're doing, then you don't need other people competition to fuel you so my day is definitely like trying to curb an addiction to social media trying to remember what my end goal is um trying to ensure that i've set the team i've communicated that end goal to the team and have empowered everybody to deliver on that end goal through various tests and experiments we pretty much work in squads like cross-functional squads with um, very specific OKRs related to each squad. And it's one, I I just love it. Like, these are the things that make me really happy. And, um, and, and just thinking and talking to other founders and investors about what they're looking for for me. So not thinking about generic advice. So not thinking, oh my goodness, like, Every SaaS business has to have this million ARR thinking for our business, for the stage we're at and for the goal that we're trying to achieve in five years, what would you be looking for for my business over the next six to 12 months? Because that's all I'm like thinking about. You know, you could look at someone who's raised capital and you might be like, oh, damn, we're in the same industry and they've got 10,000 users and I've only got 1,000 users. But actually, you might have all different kinds of things that are building value. So I, I'm quite quite obsessive about value creation yeah. rather than thinking about revenue. Like for me, a big part of the value creation that we've got now is the app, as in we have our own technology, which not many women's communities do. 
and actually we have a huge amount of data so you know we've got several thousand members now and all of those thousand members i know exactly what they've booked i know what they're into i know their profile for anyone who's filled out their profile there's 24 data points on everything from how much they earn to what their goals are in life and the next stage for me is being like well we've built the foundations to collect that data and how can we use that data to increase the revenue of people who want to sell in the app yep. you know so that that is like intangible to people on social media you can't mm. see that on social media you know what i mean it's hard to announce um, <laughs> on, on, yeah. on linkedin <laughs> yeah it's hard to announce that we've invested in all I of care. this tech. i care about my community you would have two likes um Exactly. And and then, I mean, we, with this, um, we can then talk a little bit maybe about your experience of, of fundraising um, for mm. your business, because you, you started to fundraise. So I guess you're always fundraising for the business. Um, mm -hmm. How do you approach it? And if you if you can share, you know, your, your thoughts about um, the, the process and what would be helpful for women who are undecided if they want to raise or not, or for those who are like, I need to raise, you know, what, what type of mindset, um, you know, should I, should I have? So the difficult thing about talking about fundraising is I feel like my journey is an anomaly, but then also um, it's not an anomaly because the point is, is that every single person's journey yeah. is different. Um, so I would say that the best things for me that work for me for fundraising, um, are that I had a clear thesis to the business. I had a very clear understanding of the macro problem in the world that I wanted to change and how I was going to change it. And no one holds you to that, yeah. right? Because every company develops and changes and evolves but i i had a nugget of insight that investors didn't and that would be my number one thing to do like what's the nugget of insight that your company has that investors don't know because they're not on i call it the shop floor they're not on the shop floor they're not on the street they're not dealing or talking to your user all the time so for example we've got a staff member right now that has founded a dog grooming company and um when i first heard it it didn't make sense to me but she has a nugget of insight that i don't have and then upon investigation it's actually a massive industry and a massive problem so always think about what's the nugget of insight that you have that investors don't and can you lay out almost like literally like a an essay on what this problem is like I always think about my business in like white paper terms. Like if I was to write a white paper on the business, what would it be? Mm -hmm. So my white paper would be, you know, the women's economy and the creator economy, like community, women's economy and the creator economy. That would be my white paper. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my approach to fundraising because then once you have a really strong thesis for your own business, you're essentially pat like matching with investors who have a similar thesis or are interested in those sectors. And then a lot of people say you have to kiss frogs and meet hundreds of people, but I actually think the opposite. I think you should build relationship with a select 10 to 15 and go deep on the relationships, get to understand that investor. Yep. 
let them understand you and actually see if it's a right fit. Then to your question on like the mindset, oh, it's just like, it can be so debilitating yeah. to fundraise in so many different ways. You're basically putting your, yourself and your intelligence and your ideas up for rejection over and over and over again, which is kind of weird, masochistic, yeah, a bit sick. It's a bit like being an actor. <laughs> I always think that. And then, um, so the mindset has to be an unwavering belief. That's it. You have to have complete conviction in what you do. And, you know, they talk about this reality distortion field. You need it. If you don't have a reality distortion field of complete conviction in what you're building, yep. you will crumble at like the 50th no. You probably crumble at the 10th no, if I'm honest. <laughs> so the thing I love about fundraising that doesn't really get talked about enough is the process of fundraising forces you to do the work, the strategic work in your business to see if it's viable. So like what I love about the tech industry in general and what I love about fundraising is I've learned all kinds of business modeling, like processes. I'd never heard of lean startup, of OKRs, you know, all of these like things that just improve yeah. business. Any business have come through the vehicle of me fundraising and the idea of like LTV and CAC and just, you know, the frameworks and metrics that the fundraising process forces you to do are useful for your business no matter what. So... I think that fundraising for me um, is about how do I have capital to investigate my ideas? I have a lot of ideas that I want to investigate. Um, you know, venture capital is exactly that. Go forth and venture on your idea and see if it works, like, like pioneering mindset. Can you go and be a pioneer? Check out if there is gold west. Yeah. Check out if there is this. So... I think that that is really underrated as part of the process that like, actually this is about allowing talented individuals to explore what's in their mind to see if they could come up with better solutions for the world. And that shouldn't be sniffed at really, but it doesn't suit everyone. But I do, I, I feel very fortunate that I've, had the chance to go through the process that I've been successful at the process and that I've met some incredible people along the way. Thank you very much for sharing this experience. Um, and then with, with fundraising, um, comes exit comes, you know, other conversation about the, the business that you've built and that you've, <laughs> you love. Um, so I think most founders are interested in, you know, making a huge exit. What's, so you've made money, before like through you know work maybe through investment through building businesses now you're a founder so that may be slightly different i know you do a lot of different things and public speaking and stuff like that i guess money is very important to you personally can you tell me why uh, and, and how you think about money today oh where do you start with very, that <laughs> yeah I think that money is very important to me because it allows me the freedom 
to pursue whatever I want, my interests. When I was younger, you know, we came from not a wealthy family. My mother has always lived on government uh, benefits. Um, I come from a single parent family. There was never disposable income. There was the income from the government to cover the costs that we needed to cover as a family. And if you've lived on welfare or benefits, it barely does cover Mm. the costs, right? And I remember going to school and having to basically search in the lost property for my PE kit because we couldn't afford the PE kit. You know, I had to basically wear, I kind of, you weren't allowed to take from lost property. So I essentially used to sneak into lost property and steal PE kit so that I had clothes to wear. And I just remember thinking like, this isn't really how I want to live, you know? And... I thought that at a really young age. And then when I went to university in London, well, actually, rewind. I started working when I was 14 years old. My first ever job was working in a hotel as a chambermaid. And I used to earn £5 an hour, which is a lot of money, actually. Um, And I would have one £20 note a week. And I would fold that note in my Hello Kitty purse. And I would go to school feeling rich, Oh, my God. I could go to the stationery um, shop and buy any colored gel pencil I want. If I wanted seconds at lunchtime, like a second helping of food, I could buy the food because I could afford it. And I still have a problem today with the fact that I can afford food, therefore I will buy it, you know, and I will go to fancy restaurants as a thing of, like, independence and power. And it, it was, like buying books I could buy whatever books I wanted I could travel it's like money equals freedom and options I always call it options money gives you options right and these are the lessons that I learned when I was really young that I didn't have many options when I was a kid and then when I started to get options I thrived off it and it wasn't just money it was my intelligence as well my intelligence plus my money made me have an infinite amount of options you know So when I went to university um, and I had to work like two jobs because my student loan just paid for my rent and all of my other classmates were able to study in the time that I was working, that's when it really upset me that I didn't have like uh, savings. I didn't have, my family had nothing to give me. I've never had money from my family ever, like... Um, you know, that's when I started thinking about what the cost is of not having money. And the cost is the ability for me to learn. And anything that impacts my ability to learn, like, is a big no-no for me. So then I was just thinking about how do I graduate from this degree and be in a position where I will earn a lot of money. And I had a strategy for it which was to be very very specific about the type of fashion stylist I was a lot of people would style anything and anyone I uh, had a very um, strategic process to my career from even when I was 22 that I would only style youth culture uh, sportswear and streetwear and this is pre you know streetwear being normal so this is like 2006 seven like streetwear wasn't a category, you know, on an online shopping platform. So like, um, but by doing that, I call it play games you can win. 
I was playing a game where I was the only real player. And that meant I could charge a higher price because there would be no alternatives. So the problem is, and it goes back to my earlier point, when you make a lot of money really quickly, which I did between the ages of 23 and 25, which is when I started WAR, you don't really know what to spend it on because I didn't have any family guidance. I didn't have, I didn't have a vest pod. Didn't have any. <laughs> you didn't have my book. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't have your book. I didn't have financial yeah. literacy. I didn't have any education. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I was sat around a dinner table or happy families with people talking about buying houses and investing and these things. So I have historically, since I was 14 years old, been very good at making money but I have not been good at keeping yeah. it or keeping hold of it. So I would, I think of myself or thought rather, because things obviously change. I thought of myself almost like cash flow. Yeah. I was thinking about cash flow in and out, in and out, in and out. If I've got five grand, I'm going to spend five grand. If I've, you know, got five pounds, I'm going to spend five pounds. And for me, there was this endless flow of money coming in and out and in and out. Um, And you thought this money I, was uh, was abundant, so you were not worried about okay, I've, now where do I get the money from? You knew the money no, would come, no. and you still think today yeah. money will come. Oh, a hundred percent. I've I've got this. <laughs> every time I go, without getting too woo woo, every time I go to a psychic or a tarot reader or astrologer, anything like this, they always tell me you're a lucky, fortuitous person. Yeah. You're. You know, yeah. and I know this. I, I've all I call it prospects. So options and prospects. Money gives you options, and I can always make more because I've got yeah. prospects. And some people don't have prospects, right? And I get that. Um, but I've always got opportunities and prospects and ideas. And mate, I've been so broke, but like not stressed about it because I know that I could just do something and make more money. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but for me now in the second chapter of my life, like now from thirties to like my fifties, my focus is on retaining and growing it. And that's where there's been a massive shift for me. And I've still got some hangovers of my early twenties, thirties that I need to deal with to move into that next stage. But like, you know, for me now and what's, what the focus like at the top of my mind is, Okay, so I'm really good at making money, but how do I hold on to it and grow it? And it requires really strict discipline for me anyway, because it's not in my nature. You know, you talk about, you've spoken about this before, how your parents really uh, influence your financial literacy, right? And my mum never saved, so I've never saved. And no one told me to save. So saving for me at now in my big old age is like, a, a discipline yep. that it's not natural for me and you know my themes for this year are like discipline austerity austerity consistency which I know means something different in French by the way because someone told me uh, discipline austerity consistency and reliability okay. those are my four words for the year and it really is about that so It might be spending less on clothing. It might be, you know, making sure I buy art, which was on my thing. I'm going to buy art and invest rather than buying clothes that I wear and throw away. So I think that money is an ever-moving uh, energy. Yeah. I see it as an energy that is just flowing around. 
and you can either like store your energy up you know like in in um the black panther movie when his suit stores up kinetic energy and then he can like blast it back i'm like how much more powerful could i be if i stored up my energy and blasted it back with an amazing property yeah. or you know bootstrapped to a business in my later years like that's how i'm thinking about yeah. it today invest in the stock market get compound interest and then you get this big fireball <laughs> exactly it's the fireball that's what i'm looking for now instead of the little flame yeah. to satisfy me you know and did you feel the the pressure i mean this year it's one of your of your goals um I mean, what, what led to that? Did you feel the pressure? It's because you needed money to do more things, maybe buy a house, maybe invest in other female businesses. Did you have to, to find the motivation or did you feel any pressure to do it? Or you just thought, okay, now it's the time. I feel ready. I'm positive about it and I can do it. No, it was because last year I had a real big turning point when for the first time I'd managed to save enough of a deposit for a house. And then I had a situation that I had to spend okay. it all. I yeah. had to, I lost every penny of it, basically, of this deposit. And that, the way that I like to look at life in general is everything that happens to you is not the main yeah. event. I always think yeah. this. I think that things happen and actually it's a precursor. It's almost like the universe showing you a glimpse of what could happen if you don't get your act together. So in this situation, I thought, Do you know what? I've lost this massive chunk of money. The first amount of time, the first time ever I've managed to save in my life. Um, but you know what? It could have been 10x that. It could have been that I was incredibly like wealthy with a ton of assets and actually I would have lose some even more precious assets than simple cash, which is actually all I've yeah. lost here. So that wake up call made me think, right, well, I'm, I can accrue that cash again. I'm going to try and accrue that cash again. And what I'm going to do is put things in place that mean that I'm not financially insecure. You know, my friend Paloma, she said the word financially indestructible yeah. or the phrase you want to be financially indestructible and last year I clearly wasn't and it really reminded me that and you know I think like what I was really yeah what what I was lucky to be able to do was accrue that in the first place and I thought I can do that again but let me lay the foundations to ensure that this does not happen again so I thought you know what Now is it, and also I had, um, I've been speaking to my coach actually, Cheryl Clements. I was like, Cheryl, I've been talking about buying a house for so long and I've clearly had the money to buy a house several times. So there is also an emotional blocker yeah. there of what it means to buy a house. And, you know, I had some very like emotional conversations today with friends and stuff just about life. And one of the things I've realized is that buying a house for me the emotional attachment to it was really about creating a family yeah. home that I didn't have. And one of the reasons I never bought a house before was because I never felt I deserved a family that I didn't yeah. have. So it's it, it goes back a little bit to what I said to you earlier about dealing with women holistically. Yeah, because if I hadn't solved the root trauma of why I didn't believe I deserved a family and safety, 
no, nothing is going to make me buy yeah. a home. Yeah. You know, I'd be talking about it 10 years later. I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to buy a house, <laughs> going to buy a house. I never, never bought one because I felt like I didn't deserve yeah. one. So, you know, you solve each stage at a time. And I find it really, really fascinating, the relationship between not just women and money, but working class yeah. people and money and what it means to them. And yeah, I definitely have had to deal with some of those issues before I can make a step change. Because what I found in my life, right, is that because I was good at making money and just because of the nature of the more money you make and the more status and power you acquire makes it easier to make more money, is that I was definitely increasing my earnings year on year, right? And I've also had years, largely during my early child uh, parent years, where I went back to earning hardly anything, right? And then I step change again. I mean, I increase again. But what I would say is I'm in, I've been incredibly good in my adult working life, which is 13 years or so, of incrementally increasing my income. For me to make a step change and essentially blast out of the, like, you know, stratosphere of what, what I've been doing now, I have to work on that mentally. Yeah. It's a yeah. mindset. And to solve that, you have to do the work. You have to do the therapy. You have to do reflection. Why do I have this certain relationship with money? What is holding me back from acquiring, like, assets? You know, all of my assets are tied up in my business, yeah. right? And that there's a reason for that. Like, I don't know what, it, well, I mean, I do know, but, like, what it was that was holding me back from ownership, like why I didn't want to own anything. I have this thing where I've moved house and like in I've lived in London for 17 years, right? I've probably lived in 13 or 14 different houses. Wow. I move house almost every year or every yeah. two or three years, right? There's something about that psychologically that I needed to work on before I take that step change. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Um Thank you for sharing your, your story. I think a lot of people can relate to that and, and the, the emotions around money. And you, yeah, you need to, to understand your, your story before you can make these big steps. Um, just before we, 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 we sort of close down and I ask you some quick fire question, I just wanted to talk uh, about the ethnicity wage gap um, and wealth gap, um, especially in Britain, in the UK. Can you talk a little bit about these you know, inequalities Do you have any thoughts on how to close the gap? I mean, it's it's, it's such a difficult conversation, um, but maybe where where we stand and what are the things we can do either you know for ourselves and for others, for like people around you and in 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 our communities. Yeah, so this one is really interesting because um, it has been something that I have thought about for decades, but never had the language to address. So when I told you earlier about going to university and having no family support, yeah. that is because of a lack of generational yeah. wealth. You know, not having a house gifted to me or inheriting anything, that is because of a lack of generational wealth. But I didn't really have the capacity to understand it and what it was. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading and over the latter part of last year about black generational wealth in particular. And all of, again, the reasons, because um, 
None of these social problems are ever just one thing, right? All of the reasons why we as black people have fewer assets. Now, the conversation between the UK and US is really different. So what what I find also that I'm curious and fascinated by is why this has happened in the US, why this has happened in the UK, how the black community in the US in certain areas has somehow managed to overcome that, why they haven't necessarily in the UK as much. Um, There was a really brilliant article uh, by a woman of colour on Bloomberg about how the median wealth of black people in the UK is zero dollars because obviously you're you're measuring wealth by assets and ownership. And this article was really brilliant because it kind of went back again to my obsession about housing and property and like how property ownership is so important. Olivia Simpson is one of our stack members whose family, her mum and her dad, bought property in the like 80s and 90s around South London and basically became property developers. She has, her family also has a Caribbean restaurant and she's really inspiring to me. Um, her family is inspiring because they have created generational wealth for Olivia and her sister. And it's not just uh, the the cash, right? It's really funny because when I was saying earlier about wanting a big exit, it's like, what do I want that money for? I want that money to invest in cities. I want that money to build community spaces, to build libraries and to build wings with my name on them. It's like, you know, Olivia, her family, when they built a property, they called them. She said, oh, my mum named this apartment block after me. It's called Olivia Court. Do you know what I mean? So imagine being in South London and walking past a building. And the the first time you realise this building is black owned and it's not a, a white male property developer who's, you know, gentrified, um, rich South London area so yeah I I feel like it's interesting but things are changing but we measure wealth by property which also you know is just one angle on wealth right like I would say that I definitely had a wealthy emotionally wealthy rich upbringing culturally rich upbringing I had a you know but then culturally rich doesn't put food on the table isn't it so it's like we find ourselves I say we, like black people, find ourselves trying to play a game when we weren't really told the rules and we didn't actually have the training and we didn't even have the uniforms (laughs) to play. So I think like, I think sometimes the rebellious nature in me wants to be like, you know, forget this game. I'm not getting involved in this game of life that is so archaic and patriarchal but then on the other hand I think but I could help other players and I could change the game if I learned how to play it really really well and I think I've I've learned to an extent how to play the game really really well but I just know that when I get to those positions of power and those positions of wealth I will my challenge is and this is the challenge for anyone who is working class who manages to rise to the top, the challenge is staying grounded, remembering where you came from and always trying to essentially pay it forward and support and be a citizen. Like I pride myself massively on being a citizen, like part of a 
Cosmopolis. Um, so, you know, I think like for black people, it's very difficult to be like, okay, I'm essentially playing to this system that oppressed me in the beginning. But then I think, can we become, can we become successful without becoming the oppressor ourselves? Yeah. You know? So yeah, that's that's what I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And for me, the property develop, the property ownership plus the exit, you know, having an exit, a successful exit or liquidation event for the company is some of the ways that I think I can achieve that. Because I've already started angel investing in smaller companies. And one of the things I think is interesting about fundraising is the companies that raise money from angel investors who have spare cash, they have spare cash because they had an exit, right? So you're going to have this cycle of, you know, white male founders investing in other white male founders because they have the cash to do so. So all of these things are really important. It is important to play the game and understand the game and win at it because you can change it when you get there. Yeah. You know? And that's what we discussed um, be before the recording is how do we create our own ecosystem and, and yeah, change the game, change mm. the rules of the game. Shara, I have three quick fire questions for you. Yes. What is the best financial decision you ever made? Putting myself first. Instead of feeling guilty and giving other pe giving away my money all the time, which I used to do in my 20s. What is the worst financial decision you ever made? Not separating my personal finances from my small business finances in my early 20s. And I hear a lot of women yeah. doing this now. And it's, it, it is, the knock-on effect has been detrimental. Yeah. And not paying yourself from your business. Not paying myself. That that was basically yeah. it. Not paying yeah. myself. What are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? Mm, if you asked me two months ago, I would have said books, beauty treatments, food. It's probably still the same now, but I'm also adding in art. That's it. Amazing. I spend a lot of money, books, beauty treatments, restaurants, fine dining and uh, art. And I know you love books because you're always posting about your readings. Oh my God, I, I know, love books. I know, me too. I want a library. <laughs> I want my library with my yeah. name on it. <laughs> and that's why I'm going to ask a very tricky question, which is your favorite book, maybe for the Vespod audience, maybe for, you know, the stack community. Um. <laughs> it's such a difficult one but the my favorite book is epictetus on human yeah. freedom because he's so funny and correct and you read it and you're like this book is 2000 years old you know and it's still relevant today and i would really love it if my book new methods for women In 2,000 years, if people are still reading books yeah. in 2,000 years, um, you know, if people were still, like, learning those lessons, so much of our lessons, so much of the way that Western society is constructed is constructed on Greek and yeah. Roman white society. And I think as we enter, as I say, this age of Aquarius, what would, like, make me be happy on my deathbed is if my work defined the next few thousand years of how society lives consciously 
with equality and awake, you know? Love it. Um, I will share the links uh, to your profile on the Stack World, but is there anything else you'd like to share um, or recommend to anyone listening to this episode? Um, I guess my parting words would be that there have been many situations in my life where I was stuck because I didn't have the financial freedom to take the next steps in the direction I wanted. You know, I remember one particular time when I was having an argument with a boyfriend on a regular holiday. We used to have we used to have this holiday every year and every year we'd fight and every year I'd be stuck there. And one year I had enough money to buy my own plane ticket home. And that's what I did. And the feeling of sweet relief from being able to escape this situation because I had the financial freedom to do so was like a revelation to me. And there is no shame in acquiring money to support your goals, to do what you want to do and all have the option to choose. Sure, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure um, to chat with you. I hope I'll be able to see you soon. We can follow you and everyone needs a membership to The Stack World, thestack.world. And we can follow you on Instagram at thestack.world and at charmadinreid. Um, thank you so much thank you for having me your work is so incredible and so like important and I love what you do so happy to be here and we'll definitely have dinner <laughs> soon thank you so much and see you on the stack thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet every other week I answer your questions about money on the show so to get involved send your questions and comments via our hotline to podcast at vespot.com If you send us a voice note, you may even get to hear your voice on the next Hotline episode. Be sure to share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. Please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people to find our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. Bye!